0: Welcome to the Veterinary Innovation Project podcast
1: with your hosts Katie Ford and Rue Clements.
0: We are all about the people behind the projects and this season we
1: are so excited to be focusing on high-performing teams. We would just like to take this opportunity to say a massive thank you to our sponsors Boeing and Ingelheim who are not only supporting this podcast but also the Vet-Led Veterinary Human Factors Conference. <laughs>
0: Our next guest on the podcast is someone that I find absolutely fascinating because their
1: CV must be at least 10 pages long. I don't know about you, Ru. Oh, yeah. I was looking through our well, prep for Paul. I was like, there is so many things we could talk about today that I'm just excited to see where this conversation takes us.
0: And the thing that I do love about Paul as well is I work with him at VetU as a co-director. And as much as you'll see when we speak to him that he is lovely, he is genuinely that person behind the scene as well. He is one of the kindest, nicest, most interesting guys that I've worked alongside. So I know he wants the best for this profession and bringing all of his experience from the military, the law sector, from all of the corporate sectors that he's trained in his leadership and development company, I know that we're going to have some value.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really excited to see what people think to get them, people sharing their thoughts, ideas, um, feedback. What's it sparked for you Would be lovely for us to hear when when you've had a chance to listen. Make sure you listen all the way through to the end because Paul's got some really great insights and I love the answer to to those questions that we ask at the end.
0: Yep. Hold on tight. Look forward to this one and please share on social media let us know what you think for high performing teams and what maybe your answers would be to our final four questions too we've had lots of you sharing them already so we look forward to hearing those let's get started then and head into this episode where we're going to be joined by Paul Horwood what a guest we have for you here At the Veterinary Innovation Project, we are all about the people behind the projects and what a CV this is. We cannot wait to dive into this episode, but to tell you a little bit more about our next guest, Paul Horwood. Paul has had a varied career so far. Initially an officer in the Royal Marines, Paul left and trained as a vet at the RVC but kept his links with the military returning to the front line in Afghanistan in 2012 with the Grenadier Guards. Paul qualified from RVC in 2000 and joined West Point Farm Vets becoming a partner, an owner and a director along the way before selling to private equity in 2015. In 2017, Paul diversified and set up Sandstone Communications with some other interesting people that he met along the way, and Sandstone delivers management and leadership training to professionals around the globe, using his experiences of business, adventuring, and the military, and they also support and mentor aspiring British Olympic athletes along the way too. They have an impressive list of clients that they've worked with, everyone from car manufacturers, to financial firms, law companies, and big manufacturing names too. Paul also has a diploma in bovine reproduction from Liverpool University and an MBA from the Open University. He's a VetLife trustee, a council member of the BVA, a mental health first aider, a podcaster, and also a founder of VetU, which is a financial advice platform for the veterinary profession. Now, Paul, we are so thrilled to have you here today. I'm not sure where the best place even for us to start. We could have you on here for a good couple of hours. But let's start with how do we go from being in the Royal Marines to being a vet?
2: (laughs) Hi, Katie. Yeah, thanks. Um, It it almost sounds like I planned that career path, didn't it? It, Rather than just fell into it as I uh, as I went along. Um, Yeah, it it wasn't it wasn't the straightforward linear career that I think lots and lots of my colleagues have had. Uh, When I was at school, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. Um, And I think a lot of looking back in reflection, I think a lot of the reasons I've made decisions is because people have said I probably couldn't do it. And I've sort of gone, okay, that's interesting. Let's see where let's see how far I can go before I fail. And, uh, you know, I I always looked up to the military, especially the Marines and thought, could I do it? So I had to go. And luckily enough, I, I did. But actually, uh, and and sorry to anyone listening who's in the military, uh, for me, I loved it as a young man. It is fantastic. You're getting paid to get fit. But it is not a long term career for me. And I didn't want to be 50 or 60 in the military. Uh, And so I looked around and I've I've got an uncle who's a vet. I've got family who are farming. It was always there in the background. And I luckily had the A-levels. And so I applied and, and got into vet school bit of a difficult uh, trundle through because obviously I'd had a few years away from academia the military is not absolutely focused on academia uh, but I got through vet school uh, and like you said uh, then started meeting some fantastic people and 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 off we went so yeah
1: oh I I honestly Paul just listening to Katie uh, talk through your story there there were just so many different elements that I wanted to delve into but it was there's something you just mentioned there that I'd love to just understand a bit more if that's okay so you're you you kind of mentioned there that um you want part of your kind of drive came from seeing how far you could go before you 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 failed in inverted commas. has your kind of your perception of failure changed over the years is was that something you know over all the different things that you've done how how do you feel about failure now uh,
2: yeah luckily um <laughs> luckily i've done lots of failure uh, and i think i'm getting quite good at it uh, i'm getting better and better at failing uh, i think Looking at uh, a lot of my colleagues, I think that's something that you know. So many people I know have never failed, whereas I, I have, and I think that's a, I think that's a good thing. The more I've failed, the more I've learned where my, where my failure point is. I know that I can keep pushing until that doesn't work, and then someone can challenge me, and I can go. Actually, I, I think I could have a go at that. Yeah, okay, I'll have a go, and if it works, brilliant. And if it doesn't, doesn't matter. I've still learned something, and I can still, still go on from that. Um, I, I actually quite enjoy that. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed learning by just learning where my barriers are and where my boundaries and uh, and where they are. So, yeah, I, I actually quite enjoy finding out where the failure point in me is. Yeah,
0: And I do feel like we're starting to talk a lot more about failures within the vet profession and how we can use them to move forward rather than beating ourselves with a stick about them. And it sounds, Paul, that you've learned a lot of lessons through failure, through your years of various professions and experiences, <laughs> What lessons do you think you've taken from these other professions for you personally, as you've stepped back into the vet profession again?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting one. It's it's been quite useful having time off um, to think about it. I think a lot of the times in veterinary. we're flat out we're 100% all the time we're trying to squeeze a couple of jobs into our day we're clinicians we're uh, fathers or mothers we're um, leaders we're managers we're friends we're just trying to squeeze in hundreds and hundreds of percent into a 24-hour period and we never get time to self-reflect and have a think about it That some of the best times I had one of the things I really enjoyed about being in the reserves was that I got to go away at weekends or for weeks or even have a sabbatical for 12 months and just get out of the veterinary profession and look back at it over my shoulder from a distance I'm not there uh, in the vet profession trying to analyze how I'm doing because that's really difficult I was able to look back at it also I went away and did an MBA after I sold my business I was lucky to have enough time to to sort of go away do an MBA and then develop Sandstone and again that was so self-reflective to look back and go that was good that was bad I was an ass there I actually did that right there that's great I'll do more of that I'll do less of that and just having a bit of time I think was really useful having different strings to your bow. I know, um, you know, Ebony and you, really talk about that, diversify or having side hustles. I think that's such a good thing to do, to not be a 200% veterinary, to be able to step away and look back from a distance and, and think about how you're getting on. So I think I've learned a lot just from other uh, other professions or other jobs that you could then bring back those skills back into back into the veterinary. Um, I mean, the military is a really interesting one. almost nowhere do you ever get taught leadership. Um, You know, if you go and be a lawyer, you go and be a vet, you go and be a, a pilot, you go and be anything, you're trained to be that thing no one ever teaches you about leadership you just sort of expected to learn it by accident along the way, apart from the military the military is the only place where at 18 17 and a half, 18 you can go and be trained as a leader as an officer, and it's the only place I know that actually that's their entire job is to teach you as a leader. So that was interesting to actually be taught leadership rather than just and that maybe that gave me a bit of an advantage going forward. Though, the military leadership is quite different to veterinary leadership. You know, if I order someone to do something in the military, if they don't do it, they go to jail. Um, if I, Now, as much as I would love to do that in the veterinary world, you know, go and clean out that cupboard, go and do this call. You're on call tonight. No, right, go to jail. I would love to do that, but I can't. So it's much more, you know, influencing and bringing people with you on the journey. So it's different. There are some skills that you can take from places, but also some skills you, you can't. <laughs>
0: Oh I feel like because nobody has video when you're listening to this podcast I have to point out how much Paul is laughing about the prospect of (laughs) sending people to jail he is joking that is not his aspiration within the vet space but thank you so much for that Paul. I feel like you must have a very long CV as well you just keep adding more things oh I did an MBA and that's no mean feat just added added in there as a token and I, I love the fact that you said that you still remained in the reserves as well and you're doing that was that alongside still being in practice? And were you finding there were skills that you were constantly bringing back and forth at that point?
2: Yeah, absolutely. One, it was great for me because um, uh, for me, uh, I find um, fitness, outdoors, running around, switching my thinking head completely off, Uh, is really good for you know just my resilience my mental health my my ability just to cool off you know turn your brain off for for, for a weekend and then come back and that's really good for me so the reserves was brilliant i got to go away with a different set of people very different values and ways of looking at life so that was really nice yes it's not a rest but it's a change and so that was that was brilliant for me and there were some great skills you know uh, leadership in different situations leading different people as a veterinary world, we are quite um, uniform in terms of who we are, what we look like, uh, our views, our attitudes, our behaviours are, are, are quite similar. Uh, and so, it's nice to get out and and and, and chat and be challenged on, on stuff outside of that.
1: And and Paul does that that different perspective. Do you feel that has allowed you to see the veterinary profession in a more refreshing way? Does that does that make you more frustrated? Like, how do you? I mean, I imagine that's a possibly a mix of all of it but yeah how do you feel about that
2: a hundred percent both you, yeah um it, it's great to see it in a different light it's great to see the positives because sometimes you can get quite cynical just you know w- when you're in at the coal face all the time uh, and you, you see it on the social media we have a good whinge of course we do um but it's nice to get away and then look back and go actually it's a pretty cool profession but there are some frustrations as well um we, we are a very old-fashioned profession we are a very uh, we are profession very resistant to change. You know, the old that's the way we've always done it. Always could be the mantra or the, or the strap line for veterinary profession. You know, we are very slow to to take on new ideas and way uh, new uh, new ways of doing it. So it, that uh, pros and cons, frustrations, but also some cool. stuff.
0: And here at the Veterinary Innovation Project podcast, we are so about people that are innovating, and that is what you are, Paul. You are going out to other professions looking outside of that bubble and bringing those ideas back in and that is the absolute reason why you are here <laughs> as a guest as well and as we come back to the VIP podcast we just wanted to come back to the same question that we ask everyone on here because this is a the theme of this season one you've talked a lot about teams that you've been a part of and we've been asking every single guest poll what does high performing teams
2: mean to you yeah, I've, I've been, uh, you're right, I've been a member of quite a few teams, some high-performing, some utterly not high-performing, uh, across, you know, military, veterinary, uh, expeditions, mountaineering, etc. like that. Uh, so they've all been very different teams, different sets of people. What are they actually, What does uh, it mean to me? It means that everyone in it gets what they're doing. They're not just bimbling along. If we're just a group of individuals, we're just a team. We're not a high-performing team. If we are a group of individuals, we are all pulling in the same direction, and have all got each other's back. Um, uh, you know, we're all covering each other's blind spots. Was something that someone once said to me before, which was quite useful. So that you know, the, the sum of the parts is more than the, the the individuals. So you know, I might be really good at this, but I'm rubbish at that. But I know that Katie's got my back, so she's got that. She's covering that blind spot. I'm not having to do everything. I certainly see it sometimes in veterinary because we're massive overachievers, but also quite individualistic people. Um, We try and do everything and we don't delegate the stuff we're not good at to other people who can then do that. We're trying to do everything at a a mediocre level or 75%, whereas we could be 100% at that and and leave the other things to to other things. So, you know, in the military, when you go out the door, um, uh, you know, you you take a medic with you. Now, I don't try and do uh, you don't have eight people who can do everything you have someone who's brilliant at being a medic and then you have someone who's brilliant at leading and you have someone who's brilliant at uh using different kit and so you have different people who are absolutely focused on being brilliant but individually they're a waste of time whereas perhaps we're perhaps more generalist in the the, the veterinary world in in terms of that so absolutely you, you know trusting each other understanding what everyone else is doing having a goal what are we actually here for when i was in afghanistan it was one of the most Amazing things I noticed in the team that was out there with all the all the politics, all the issues, all the problems, everything just went away. It was just a a can do attitude because we knew what we were there to do. It was the benefit was it was there for a short period of time, you know, uh, but we utterly were focused on the goal and all the other problems. If there were problems, we all just went, yeah, let's fix it. I thought that was That for me is what a high performance team is. Problems come in. We don't blame. We don't try and shirk. We all just go. Yeah, I got it. We all know where we're going. Uh, You're better at that. Brilliant. You've got that. We're better at that. So we've all got. We we can all do that. Trust each other. Get each other's backs, etc.
0: Absolutely, Paul. I I love the point of coming together on a goal. And this again is a theme that's come up through a few of the episodes too. Of how infrequently do we actually sit down as a team and decide what success and what the goal looks like? And I've never experienced that in clinical practice through, I was in clinical practice for eight years. And at no point did we sit down and say, what are we all aiming for? And I think we all assumed we were aiming for the same thing, but actually nobody ever had that clear conversation. So Paul, you've got so much experience from other parts of other professions as well, and actually how they work with their teams and maybe how they bring team members on board and introduce them to the culture and the ethos and the goal is there anything that you've learned from them
2: yeah this is the one thing that I I noticed when I went away and and set up my um, training business I started to get involved and immersed into other professions who are quite similar to us, you know, medical, legal, uh, accountancy. They're, they're very similar ways of doing business uh, and, and ways of uh, looking at the world, the people evolved. And the big the big difference that I'd never noticed because I'd always, you know, spent most of my time in veterinary was how we bring new people into the team. And we are terrible at it in veterinary, absolutely terrible at it. Um, and, and I've been absolutely guilty of the same. We, we employ a new vet, and what do we do? We go, right, uh, you know, there's the key, there's your login, uh, consults in 20 minutes, go. And, and, and you know, you've walked in through the door and you're still putting on your polo shirt with the brand on and, you, and you've and you got clients in your face and off you go. And, and uh, you know, you don't know how to make RoboVet or whatever turn on, you don't know where the drugs are, you're rummaging around cupboards to find, try and find a syringe, your car runs out of petrol, whatever. We are setting our teams up for success because we're so like, I'm paying you, you've got to work. Whereas in all the other professions I've worked in, literally in, in the law, it's four weeks before you do anything, anything at all for a wow. new employee. You spend four weeks getting paid, but just being inducted into the team, the culture, you meet the people, you meet everybody else, you meet the team, you, you get your logins, you get your phone, everything gets worked through. Your emails are actually working and turning up. <laughs> you know, wow. You know, everything gets done so that when you start client-facing you should be at least jogging rather than trying to go from a standstill. And I think we are so bad at bringing people into our team um, in in the vet world.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And I guess there's, there's, well, there's multiple elements to that, but particularly you've got your practical things. So people are feeling like, Oh, I know what I'm doing. So I'm, I'm safe. And I, I, I'm, I'm confident. And then there's the sort of more slightly intangible things about, what is the way we want people to be performing and behaving to each other what's our what's our way so that people understand that the 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 norms and you know the, the culture that we want to be encouraging in that team or practice so if we don't give people that time and space to really understand that the question being one step before that have we got that defined of people understanding that so that we could then culturally onboard people into that that's a whole other area but yeah being able to give space to both of those areas is is so important like you said not not done consistently definitely.
2: And you're setting the team up for for failure because not just the person coming in but everyone else will have to cover their back they'll have to you know you, you then have the the issues and the frictions of mistakes happening people having to spend time to fix those mistakes or whatever so you're just fracturing your team you're creating more problems for your your team and and making it less high-performing by bringing, by just chucking new people in without any of that in, induction process. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And just from your insights, Paul, do you think, what's the reason behind that? Is that because we haven't yet understood the importance of that? Or is it just that often teams and individuals are so busy that they're just not, um, there is there is not time or space or planning in that? What, what do you think kind of might be some of the reasons that are behind that?
2: Well, th- good point. And I was thinking back to why I did it, and I did it. You know, absolutely. and and I think it's the culture of the veterinary industry, but we don't know any better because we haven't been out and we haven't seen and we and it's the old that's the way we've always done it. That's how I was inducted into, into jobs. So I assume well oh, that must be how we do it. There you go, there's your stethoscope, crack on. And and it's not until and I didn't realize and I absolutely did this sort of thing to people who were employed at, at my company, and it was not until I went away and saw a different way of doing things that I just went, oh. Why did I not realise that? Uh, and there's, some, there's something, I said at the beginning, there's something so good about being able to step outside the vet industry for a while and look back at it from a distance and see this sort of stuff, yeah.
0: I feel like we started to draw a lot of parallels between what we can learn from other industries, what we can bring back to the vet industry, and presumably with things like communication, there is so much that we could take, I presume, from the military, from the army, knowing that actually... If they get communication wrong, there are big, big consequences to that. And obviously there can be in the vet profession as well, but I could see it could make you quite hot on making sure you get that right. So Paul, what other lessons do you think we could draw as you being someone that's been and had a foot in each camp that we could bring across to the vet profession to make positive changes? And I I presume in your role as an advisor now that you're looking forward to getting your teeth into actually doing some of that.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, one of the big ones is um, communication, getting sure that everybody knows what's going on. Um, so often uh, we we think everybody knows exactly what's going on, but that's just because we know what's going on and we haven't actually told everyone exactly what, what it is that's, get, that, that, that's happening out there. And there's often barriers. So, you know, you might be the head vet and you tell your senior vets and then they know, but then it doesn't go down. Why doesn't the junior vets know? Why don't the nurses know? Why don't the reception staff know? Why doesn't everybody know exactly what's going on? And you suddenly start to see that there are there are barriers when you have a when you have a very rigid um, command structure. I suppose is the word I'm looking for from the military. It's not quite the same in veterinary. When you have that very rigid structure. Um, uh, communication doesn't flow up and down, it's even worse if you're in an ambulatory practice because the, the equine and the farm vets are not there, so you don't get that gossip and, and interaction, stuff like that. And so one of the cool things I saw in the military was that they were doing these, um, they, they call it an all-informed net, but what basically what it is was that the big boss, whoever they were in the practice or the corporate or the, the group or whatever, would just come in and chat and get everyone to know what was going on in the future. Rather than just come in and tell everyone what's happening now. And that's a really, uh, I'm not sure I've explained that well. The idea is instead of communicating what you need to do today by coming in and ordering, right, you do this, you do that, you're on ops, you're going out and doing calls. You, uh, once a week, once a month, whatever it is, whatever you need to do, you start to tell them what you're worried about and what you're thinking about and what decisions you might need to make in the future. And that then empowers everyone, everyone realizes the pressure you're under, everyone can feed into that decision making, rather than you coming in and going new rotor, or we're buying this practice down the road, or we're setting up a branch, and and it's a done deal, you go, I'm thinking maybe we should look at maybe setting up a branch, or maybe we need to go to two vets on the rotor in the future, and you just let them know before you've made the decision rather than telling them after you've made the decision just to get everyone bought in and vets love this i've noticed this professionals vets professionals absolutely love to have their opinion uh to give their opinion there's something so even if decision is no we're not going with your decision just to be asked you could just see them just oh brilliant i'm going to tell you now they absolutely love to be asked so uh, i i that's what i one of the things i really want to move into in the veterinary world that i've noticed in the in the military was really good to try and break down this problem with making sure that everybody knows what's going on and what's going to happen and what might happen and where the pressures are and what the decisions might be in the future to get everyone involved in that so i thought that was quite an interesting thing that i'm trying to work
1: on <laughs> and i love that paul like i guess when we we could we could have a whole different indicator we should definitely have a whole series on leadership <laughs> there's just yeah so, so much and i was like where, where could we go with this but i suppose the the challenge that i see in that currently is it requires our leaders within practice to be vulnerable to be able to share their thoughts to to be able to be willing to say i know i said this last week but things have changed and i or that was a mistake or that was a check, you know, so it requires a whole different level of authentic leadership, both a level of communication, a level of vulnerability, willingness to share that um, again is something that, you know, it's, it's totally possible for people. It's not like you either have it or you don't, but it's, it's a different style that hasn't been modeled in many places for us in this profession, in my experience. To date, but I'm starting to see it definitely, definitely in different areas. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that too, Paul or Katie.
2: Yeah, the, the worry there, I think, is a lot of people are in leadership positions and they've got that imposter syndrome. They worry that if they uh, allow people to see that they're not 100% sure, that that will then. Uh, make them uh will bring them down in other people's eyes and uh people will look down on them or think that they're rubbish leaders and they they feel they have to uh to be hundred percent and perfect in this this Spartan giving out dictats. Um Katie, you're absolutely more the expert in this than me, but my, my thinking is that a lot of people certainly when they're new to leadership, worry and think they have to make all the decisions. And, and perhaps when they get more mature in their in their job or more confident in their job or more confident in their in their skin they're more willing to to open up perhaps a little bit. There was one thing I wanted to say on that. So from the military, again, because of what the military does, people die, get injured, et cetera. They absolutely teach uh, other people to be able to fill in if the leader's not around. And then I was talking to an awesome lady called Jo Bradshaw, who has done seven summits she's um uh, one of the top people in the Duke of Edinburgh scheme fantastic mountaineer and and she's you know led people up Everest and Kilimanjaro many 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 times and she said when I asked her exactly this you know what what do you think about this She, she goes I've got it right in my team I know my team is flying if I don't turn up the next day and everything's fine And I thought, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So, you know, absolutely not the big, gobby, shouty, listen to me, I am. It's the everyone's trained up. They know what they're doing. That's a high performance team. They've got it. They understand the goal. If the leader's not there to handhold and spoon feed them every morning, doesn't matter. They know they can carry on. I thought that was pretty cool.
0: (laughs) I really love that. That story from Joe and. I think coming back and looping back to your point very briefly on imposter syndrome, Paul, I completely agree. And we know a lot of the things that input to imposter syndrome are societal stereotypes. And if we've seen what we think a leader should look like, and then we end up cross-referencing ourselves to that, then that can actually mean that we miss out on what could be a really powerful type of leader that actually isn't based on those misconceptions of, like you say, Spartan standing there giving out orders. And as a really brief personal reflection, the job I stayed in the longest was the one where I actually ended up very good friends with the boss. And I almost had this very eye opening moment of saying, My goodness, look at all these struggles and these worries and these plates that you're spinning in the background. And I understand now why you can't always give us a clear answer. And she involved me and asked my opinion. And like Paul said, I quite enjoyed giving my opinion, but I'd never been asked for that. But as a reflection, I stayed there for six years. So actually, I do think that. Those involving team members and yeah, vulnerability as leaders. Could be a whole other series in itself, couldn't it?
2: There's something to be said about a vacuum of communication. If there's a vacuum, if the if if no one knows what's going on, rumour, innuendo, worry, anxiety, all of this sort of stuff starts to come. You start to imagine the worst if you're in a team that's not a high performing team and you don't know what's going on. Am I going to lose my job? Is it all gone wrong? Uh, you know, why am I not being told? You always worry and imagine the worst and so absolutely just you know communication some communication is better than no communication vacuums are bad yeah.
1: absolutely and that's a huge element of that psychological safety that um, we, we talk about so much and we're really hoping will be something that is much more talked about in the profession going forwards and and in the day-to-day but just making sure that people feel safe in whatever that looks like for for them and for that team then we'll, then we'll start to see people kind of performing at, at their very best.
2: Yeah, if you're worried about your job, your health, your career, your family, you're never going to be that good at work. You've got to get rid of those things first. Sort, it a bit off. sort those things out first. And
0: that's what we're really looking forward to, talking more on all of these topics, psychological safety, culture, Uh, And much, much more you'll see at the Veterinary Human Factors Conference at the end of February as well that we are running in the lead up to. And Paul, I have absolutely loved hearing all of your story. I feel like we could talk to you for another four (laughs) or five hours. There are some really good stories that I know we haven't had a chance to bring up yet. So maybe we'll have you back on the leadership season when we get round to there as well. But we always end up with our four sentences which everyone will have heard on previous episodes where we put you on the spot and ask you to finish them for us. So we get to know a little bit more about the people behind the projects because you were no doubt innovating Paul and bringing some fantastic ideas back to the profession. So the first one that we've got here is, I wish I could go back and tell myself.
2: (laughs) Uh, I wish I could go back and tell myself not to sweat the little things. Um, I I think I'd like to just say, and. I sort of started to have the uh, don't let perfection get in the way of good enough, Uh, you know. And lots of people will shout at me in the vet world because we like perfection, but I just don't sweat the little things. Think about the big stuff, focus on the big stuff, and the little stuff often sorts itself out.
0: Very true. And the next one is, I am happiest when
2: Uh, when I'm in the outdoors. uh, I absolutely love it. And the mountains for perfection. If I if I could just be in the mountains with my friends. Every day, I would be, I would be the happiest. Absolutely, something about it. <laughs> uh,
0: there is something very therapeutic about being outside, isn't there? Um, one of the many strings to your bow that we've not had a chance to mention is that you're a vet life trustee, and you raised a huge amount of money last year doing the trek across Wales <laughs> with some fantastic people. That I believe Paul was the king of just another two kilometers. <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: had to, I had to be motivational, but then everyone just laughed at me. So yes, it was, it was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun and a long way.
0: But yeah. And a lot of money raised. So very admirable. Our next one. And this is in, in line with the VIP podcast. I am most innovative and creative when...
2: Yeah I had to think I got to think about this one because I don't see myself as innovative as creative but um uh, so my thoughts are I'm most innovative and creative when I'm bouncing around ideas with other people I I can't do it on my own I need to sit in a room often with a bottle of wine or something and just chat and mull over ideas and go down rabbit holes and cul-de-sacs so I am most innovative and creative probably in a restaurant, in a pub, with a couple of friends and a bottle of wine, just just chatting blue skies, et cetera.
0: I imagine what fantastic ideas have come up over the years, judging by how many things you've done, Paul. And the final one, we have our genie moments. I wish.
2: I wish. This was the one I had trouble with. Uh, I suppose I just wish uh, that my kids look back over, uh, over the next 10, 15 years, and have just got some great memories of, uh, of us together. So that's what I wish for, really.
0: You know how many times the I wish has come back to family and to children in this podcast series and we always end up with the same reflection of just remembering that we're more than our job titles and we are humans and there's so much more to us than what we do in our nine to five or in the vet profession, not always a nine to five, but coming back to that being people first, so honestly, thank you so much, Paul. We have gained so many insights, so much inspiration, so many lessons. I feel like a lot of people listening to this are going to get so much value moving forward. Um, All we can say is thank you.
2: Thank you. That was lots of fun. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Paul. And just before we head into Ruth and I's dissection of Paul Howard's episode, don't forget that listening to this podcast, you do get an exclusive 10% discount on your Veterinary Human Factors Conference tickets, the code being VIPPODCAST10, that's vippodcast C A S T one zero. And we're just going to head to our fantastic sponsors, Boring at Ingelheim, for one minute before we re-catch you again to talk a little bit about our reflections on that episode. We asked Boehringer their thoughts on Paul's episode, and this is what they had to say. They said, from Paul's episode, one of his subtopics that really stood out was the area of clear communication. At Boehringer Ingelheim, this continues to be a key focus for us, and we are fortunate to have spent time learning from an expert in this field, Brené Brown. Clear, honest communication can feel really uncomfortable at times. However, it's one of the fundamentals to ensuring that individuals and teams can perform at the best. Brené is famous for a phrase which we think sums up why we should all be braver with clear communication. The phrase is clear is kind. If you reflect on what this means, you realise the opposite is true. Unclear is unkind and as such helps us realise why when we have an obligation to our colleagues and team members to communicate honestly and clearly. As you listened to Paul today, perhaps it's time to reflect on how you can take this phrase and relevant actions moving forward with your colleagues and team. And for those of you that wanting to know more about clear communication, we can recommend Brene Brown's book titled Dare to Lead, and they really hoped that you enjoyed this
1: episode.
0: Well, that was super interesting. I've learned so much from Paul. I know that we always love to reflect and we encourage you to do the same at the end of these podcasts as well. Think about what your take home message was, what you're going to start doing, what you might stop doing or what you might continue doing, because that is so key for us to reflect on anything that we spend our valuable time on. Rue, I know that you said already we could have spoken to Paul for hours we could have done probably a whole Paul Howard series, I think, if we went through his whole story. But what was your light bulb moment? What was your key
1: reflection from that episode? Oh, absolutely, Katie. I'm already thinking, oh, next season, what can we do in um, leadership and beyond within the veteran profession? Um for me, there are so many things that Paul said that reminded me of um, conversations I've had in the past or things that we're planning in the future. And I think the, the part that really hit home when I'm reflecting that, you know, the, the thing that I'm really taking forward is that remembering how how important it is for people within our teams to feel that shared sense of going forward, knowing what's happening, that sense of safety, the sense of belonging, but also the sense of being included um, and feeling like they, they, that we all matter, that our opinions matter, that our thoughts matter. Obviously, that knowing that we're all human, that things can change, that, you know, we, we're not in control of everything, but that we, we have that shared mental model and that we're all communicating to the best of our ability.
0: I completely agree. And when people put it so simply, it makes so much sense. But I know through my own personal experience, I haven't really ever seen that happen. We just all make that assumption that we're all on the same page, don't we? And I think off the back of that, my light bulb moment would be what Paul was talking about with team inductions. We do just throw people at the telephone. When we're introducing client care teams, they're set up, here's the system, here's the login, and there ends up being that moment of, what do I say to this person? What do I say to that person? Or as a vet, when you're already feeling worried because all those imposter voices are popping up and all that self doubt's coming along. And you're questioning yourself over what brand of vaccine do we use here? What is the gap between these ones? What do they like to say about spaying and castration as their set protocols? And then when you have to go and ask those questions because you've not been in, had an induction, no one's explained, even the practical level side of things, you start to doubt your abilities as a professional And then when we step out of that, we go into what you just talked about there of introducing what are our team aims, what is the culture about here, what are our values, what's important to us, and how much that would ease a transition into a new role and stop having what I describe in my personal experience as a floundering moment of goodness, can I even be a vet? I thought I did really well in my old job. I don't know what I'm doing here. Oh, I'm having to ask so many things. And actually, if we, we did step back and look at those other professions, and their induction procedures and looking at putting that across into our space and in a way that suits us I realize that with staffing at the moment it's not always that easy for us to have a gap with a full-time potential member there but I'm sure there are ways that we can work around that and actually mean that they're
1: inducted into the team well for the good of the team and for the good of them as well. Oh absolutely and I think There is also that kind of slightly different way of thinking about this, Katie, where we could think about onboarding and induction. That, in a way, with a lot of teams is never ending because we want people to be continually reminded about what what is it that matters to this team? Where are we going? How does that onboarding, our cultural of onboarding, so that stays front of mind so that we can keep making sure that our teams and our practices and organizations are heading in the directions that we want them to, that we're happy with, um, and that everyone is feeling part of that journey.
0: I also think thinking of that app A macro level as well like what moves are we making that align with that so that it becomes more than us writing a few words on the wall of the staff room so that every move that we make is aligned and we don't have a dissonance between what we say on paper that we're about as a team and what actually happens at a ground level too so considering that as we move forward too and making that like you say an ongoing process for this is why we're doing this because this is important to us and Paul's point of This is what we're thinking about in the future. This is what we're considering. This is what might happen and bringing everyone together with that vision. So I feel like this has been a really powerful episode. I certainly took a lot from it. I hope that everybody listening did as well. If you do want to find out more about what Paul's doing or what Paul's been up to, you'll find all of his details for the various companies and organizations that Paul is a part of in the show notes too. And once again, a huge thank you to our sponsor, Boring at Ingelheim for their continued support and making this series possible. So, thank you. Take care, everyone.